Hello and welcome to the Phenomena podcast. I'm Elliot Salandi-Brown, a partner at Red Associates, and in this episode we'll be exploring the topic of luxury, in particular what other sectors can learn from their successes and challenges in becoming more sustainable in recent years. And to explore this topic, I'm joined by my fellow partner at Red Associates, Charlotte Vangsgaard, from our Paris office. Bonjour, Charlotte. Bonjour, Elliot. Ça va? Oui, ça va bien, merci. So, Charlotte, for the last few years, you've been doing a lot of work inside some big global luxury companies, shaping strategies that help them really connect with and grow their audiences and customer base. And in a moment, we'll go on to talk about what we can learn from how they've been approaching sustainability. But first, could you just give us a sense of the kind of work you've been doing with them? What kind of problems you help them solve? What's it like working with them? Uh, so, so Elliot, as you know, we pretty much always try to understand from sort of outside in how to resolve whatever tension, whatever problem a company is working on. In the luxury business, it's very much always the same question, really. It is how to stay relevant with different kinds of consumers. And relevance, when you are a luxury company, very much means remaining or becoming a symbol of uh, distinction, a symbol of status. If you're not a symbol of distinction, a symbol of status, it's very hard to get people to pay the premium that uh, you pay for a product from one of the big luxury brands. So that's really what we do. We help these companies, our clients, understand how they can make people feel that when they buy and use their products, they show up as the best or the version of themselves that they aspire to be. So understanding what those aspirations are and what the underlying desires are that drive these choices is at the heart of our work across the luxury industry, really. Let's move on to talk about sustainability. Uh, The luxury industry excels at selling desire and building a movement and creating a passionate identity around a brand. But in recent years, it's also successfully weaved sustainability and green into its appeal to consumers, turning something that many sectors struggle to authentically engage with into a reason for people to spend. You've touched on this a bit, Charlotte, but could you first give us a sense of the role of sustainability, the role of green at the moment in the best luxury brands and products and experiences? Sure. I think there are many reasons for being sustainable or becoming more sustainable. And one of them, I think, is that basically to feel that you're on the right side of history in the boardrooms, in leadership, very often people do feel that it's worthwhile. Uh, So in the luxury industry, lots of investments have been made over the last five years to basically, you could say, first clean up their acts meaning looking at their supply chains and uh, trying to avoid being the problem. Uh, Maybe not necessarily being the solution either, but at least not being the main cause for the depletion of some valuable resource uh, and really trying to work through their supply chain, not to cause problems, right? So that has been very much sort of the early investments have been made in that area. And you could say you can do a lot that way. If you look at sort of your classic French uh, CEO, owner, would typically, you know, there is this French idea that if you start talking about the good things you do, it kind of takes away from the good, right? So it becomes a little bit distasteful, really. So many companies have had the habit of doing stuff in the background, but not really talking about it. 
And I think as consumers and people have moved, and now in general, many, many people want to live more sustainable lives, the luxury industry has, of course, asked itself, what do we then do about that? One thing is, yes, we clean up our act, but is that enough? Is there a way maybe to even use the sustainable investments that the companies have made and are making to use them to also drive a desire going forward? So basically to switch the sustainability investments from risk management way of looking at them to avoid scandals to more of a front stage facing way of uh, differentiating yourself in the market. If you're selling, of course, you're selling a dream. You are trying to tap into people's desires and for people to pay a lot for a handbag. They can't be questioning whether it is also not just sustainable, but also the very best that you can possibly get. And that tension has been sort of part of the discussion in many luxury companies when they have been thinking about how to use their sustainable investment in a consumer-facing proposition, right? How to solve that problem. And what we can see is that when luxury companies manage to integrate their sustainability investments in a bigger uh, narrative where the sustainable aspects of a product, of a supply chain, helps deliver a proposition that is more meaningful, then you start, and mean it, it sounds a little abstract, I know, but it's hard to explain really, other than that it helps explain maybe why the product gives you a sense of, let's say, purity, gives you a sense of uh, being at the vanguard of innovation, then uh, sustainability starts becoming something that drives a desire. Could you tell us more about the role of sustainability in their businesses? They have very much kept it as a way to build credibility. And what that then means is that what we can now see is the the activities, the propositions that uh, the luxury companies are bringing to market now that are sustainable, especially in the repurposing of reusing uh, materials in the secondhand market, in uh, vintage, is really pushing against this idea that in consumer culture, what is new is best. And in that way, there is, at least from a, a recycling point of view, a lot that other industries can learn from the luxury industry. The way that they find ways of making a vintage dress, you could also say a dress that somebody else has worn before you, much, much more desirable than a new dress. I find that quite inspiring. If you take people showing up at the red carpet and uh, see how the most aspirational, the most desirable women on the red carpet at this moment are women showing up in recycled clothes. You would not have seen that three years ago. Two years ago, you started seeing signs of that. So that sounds like our first transferable learning in a way. They've managed to find a way to make reusing something, recycling something, something not being new, but being old, even more appealing. So it would be lovely if you could say a few words about how they've achieved that um, and what other sectors could learn from making that somehow desirable in a culture where new is often seen as best. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there is this notion talking about pre-loved. Sure, it sounds cheesy, but there is something about the way that the luxury industry is pushing this idea that somebody else, somebody possibly more glamorous than you, has used this dress or this bag, 
And when you, as a consumer, buy into that, you get a little bit of that halo of that person before you having loved, used, worn that dress or bag. And what they're doing there, the luxury industry, is that they are creating a bigger dream than just buying a new dress and recycling something that has been owned by somebody else before you. So it's it's this idea that you need to tap into people's imagination of something fantastic. In our conversations with clients from other sectors, we're often trying to help them remove friction. Remove friction from the shopping experience, from the usage experience, from the brand experience. Could you help us understand why for luxury brands, keeping friction in the experience has been important to them? And what's the connection between that and making people feel like they're doing the sustainable thing? So the friction that the luxury industry has, it's a pleasurable friction, (laughs) but it's friction nevertheless. So it's putting up barriers so that you have to make an effort to get something. That's really the key to it. And I think they do it to drive up this emotion of distinction. I'm distinctive because I'm different from everyone else. But I think the friction idea is actually relevant for many companies that since a lot of the joy of buying is the process of buying itself, the joy of finding, discovering something to surprise yourself that you found it, if that is just by two clicks of a mouse, that's great. If it's toilet paper where you have a fundamental need, you just want it met. But at the moment when it starts becoming more of a an exploration of your identity, a a, a way of finding a community that you can uh, share your ideas with, a way to belong to a a bigger community. When that is the case, you want friction. You want interactions. You don't want just the purchase to be over with. You want to be in a community where buying, sharing, talking about what you have bought, sharing the experience of using it, is part of uh, the total experience, and that takes friction. Is sustainability alone enough to drive desire for these luxury brands? With luxury, sustainability is a particular, you know, there, there is a big opportunity to use sustainability to drive desire, but you have to sort of integrate the sustainable aspects of a product, of an offering, of a service. You have to integrate it into a grander narrative that makes sense, that is desirable to people. Sustainability on its own is not enough to make luxury consumers feel that it's a luxury product. So you need to find other ways. And friction, the point of interacting with, for example, in a purchasing journey, that it's not fast and easy, that it's actually hard work to buy a luxury product. When you create friction of waiting lists, uh, all sorts of memberships you need to have to get to the product, you drive up desire, really. You drive up this sense, you confirm to people that this product that you are finally going to have, not many can have it because it's such a hassle getting it, you could say. And in that way, that, that sense of scarcity drives that desire. And this way of of using friction, making it hard for people to, for example, to be allowed to buy a product that is sustainable, you have to do your part to be allowed to get it again. You have to maybe make 
donations, you have to maybe contribute to the community where some of the materials are coming from. You have to know and understand about those communities in order to be seen as worthy of buying that product. And all these things are ways that you create friction, right? Using sustainability actually as a tool in that process. I've heard you talk about how businesses can make being sustainable feel active to customers in a way that increases that feeling in their minds that they've done the right thing. Could you tell us a bit more about how luxury brands have made people feel good about sustainability by participating, by being a part of something, by being active? Yeah, lots of companies are trying to create communities around their products, right? It's a very strong, if you can find a way to create a community around your your brand, your products, the idea is obviously that people will keep on coming back to you when they need an upgraded version or something else in that same space, in their same lifestyle idea. Uh, so it's, it's, of course, extremely attractive to create these communities. And we can see that... Not all consumers, but there is a subset of consumers where this idea of being active, of joining in, joining a movement is so motivating and is part of building their own identity as a sustainable consumer. So when luxury companies manage to turn the purchase of their products into an interaction with the category as such and into an interaction with for example, parts of their supply chain where you then as a consumer can contribute to helping out, uh, tapping into your sense of, I guess, your sense of being a benevolent human being. Especially in the US, it's an extremely important motivator for quite a lot of luxury consumption, really. Could you tell us a bit more about the role of community in creating luxury demand and how that works, how they get that right? I think the easiest example and the clearest example of this is when you look at uh, how some of the high-end sellers of, of high-end wines create a community of people waiting for the next harvest, participating in the harvest, being in a community that shares the cellar where the fine wines are stored and where you can go and uh, make sure that they're doing well as you wait for them to age and, and become the best they can be, those communities are extremely strong and people are willing to pay a premium for that, right? Beyond, you could cynically say, beyond what the bottle on its own is worth because the community is worth so much more than just the wine in itself. As all wine connoisseurs know, wine is such a deep and complex uh, field that the ability of wine to create that engagement and that active participation, even the dream that many have of owning a vineyard, but the reality behind that being that that is a lot of hard work. Uh, so it's actually nice just to be part of a community that together share this idea that we all own this vineyard together. We own the cellar, we own the barrels where the wine is stored, and we together take care of that wine until it should be drunk, really. So you, you have some very beautiful examples of that uh, where it works very, very well. We know that many other brands in other sectors try to connect with or create a community and fail. So from your dealings with these luxury brands, can you give us a sense of why that's so difficult and some of the things that possibly companies are getting wrong as they try and make those communities work? I think it's a really interesting question why it's so hard. 
I think one of the reasons why some luxury firms succeed with this so well is because they put the care and attention into the individuals in the communities. So you don't feel like it's all about feeling part of a community for your own sake and not feeling like a consumer that is being, you know, marketed to and sold to again and again and again. And that takes care and you have to control yourself, I guess, as a company that you don't overdo pushing all sorts of things in the direction of that consumer. It's the old rule in marketing that uh, the customer is king, but really understanding that, well, community is king and you have to treat it as such. And luxury firms are very often extremely good at that. Is there perhaps a connection between the level of understanding that a business has of how communities work and getting your engagement with the community right? Have you helped our luxury clients succeed through understanding the dynamics of communities better, their rules better, and the objectives and aspirations of the people who belong to them better? Absolutely, Elliot. I think that's that's an excellent point. And I think one of the things that has happened, I guess, over these last 15 years, 20 years, where luxury has gone global, is that temptation to be global in the way you interact with your customers is huge, right? There's a lot of advantage in doing that. But reality is that even if there are global trends, as I was talking about much earlier in this conversation, there are also lots of uh, specificities to local communities and cultures. And as you try to build these communities, having a deep understanding of the people that you would like to be members of your community, what their needs and desires and dreams, aspirations are, what their values are and how those values uh, show up is extremely important. And you can't assume that just because you understand the community that you're yourself from, that you can just take that understanding and roll it out in a global sort of push and be successful with that. That is typically not how things work. And when companies try to do that, I mean, the communities they create, I guess you could say, aren't really communities. They are just efficient ways of selling things, which is fine, but they don't get the benefit from building strong communities that I believe you only can get if you really understand your consumers well uh, and understand that you can't just infer from your own, let's say, lived experience to the rest of the world. Final question, Charlotte. Is there anything that you haven't shared that you think we can learn from in terms of how they're making sustainability work for their businesses? I think one of the big things that is particular to them is that they do understand that the brands that they are the custodians of, so to speak, are the biggest value that they have. And that whatever investments you make in that brand is for the long term. And having a long-term perspective on your business is extremely smart when it comes to sustainability because some of the projects that you will launch will be very long-term. You won't be able to talk about them quickly. You won't be able to really see all the benefits of these projects in the short term. It is for the long-term. And therefore, only makes sense if you think about your brand, your business, the house uh, you are leading in that this long-term perspective. And I think that is something that I've been lucky or, or we have been lucky at, at Red to work with quite a lot of uh, family-owned uh, businesses or privately owned, I guess you say. And a lot of them have this attitude that the business that they uh, run 
that they're just taking care of it for this generation, and that they need to make sure that their kids, when they inherit it, will also have a great, vibrant business to develop. And that mindset makes sustainable investments a lot easier to justify. And I think not all companies have that privilege of being able to ignore quarterly earnings. But I think the more sort of quarterly earnings focused companies become at explaining to their investors and their consumers eventually that these long-term investments are actually a way to sustain shareholder value or even grow shareholder value and stakeholder value, the more we will all benefit and the more they will be making the I would say from a more ethical, moral point of view, the more they will be making the right kinds of investments that they need to make. Charlotta, thanks so much for joining us on the Phenomena podcast and for sharing all your experiences with these luxury clients. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Elliot. It was a pleasure. So I'm excited to also have Stéphane Giraud here to speak to us on the podcast about the remaining challenges for luxury companies as they try to get sustainability right and the opportunities for them to do even more in that green space going forwards. He's the Professor of Strategy and Organisational Innovation at the Institute of Management Development in Switzerland, where he runs its annual Reinventing Luxury Lab. And he's written articles on luxury for the likes of Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Stefan. Thank you very much, Elliot. It's a pleasure to be with you all. It would be great if we could start by you explaining to us just how big sustainability is in the luxury space today. Well, I think it's big and it's becoming bigger because everyone is talking about it. So it's becoming really big. I think that um, we have these examples of the climate emergency that becomes more serious by the day, as we've witnessed this summer. The implications on the natural environment and the world of animals is also absolutely enormous. So it's with good reasons. We have the social fracture. That's uh, also uh, growing, particularly now if we talk about food shortages or even energy restrictions. You know, there will be the serious questions about what luxury means in the world where things become rationed. So with good reasons, we see, for example, um, more and more luxury brands hiring chief sustainability officers and themselves starting programs that are transforming and helping to accelerate on this particular hugely important strategy topic of sustainability. I think the problem I see is that it's really approached in pockets and the link with what it means in terms of strategy is often missing. In other words, how can we build, sustain, renew our competitive advantage be relevant for the customer and desirable for the customers we have chosen in the way our competitors cannot. You know, I attend a lot of um, presentations uh, and even for our customers here at at IMD, we work with many of the big luxury brands uh, in the world on the custom program side. And I'm really baffled to very often what I'm hearing is a list of targets And nothing that says about what links these targets and why those particular targets. Could you tell us a bit more about those remaining challenges and where you think they should focus in the coming years? The big challenge for the luxury brands is that they have, if you like, seven headwinds against um, 
sustainability. And one of them is the mindset, because most companies think that because they're producing high-end durable goods, and in particular in the hard luxuries, you know, I can pass on my watches and my jewelry to the next generation. So this is, of course, true. But as you produce these things, you have all sorts of uh, negative impact that you can make on the natural environments, on the carbon footprints, and the social footprints. You know, where are the materials coming from? How are the people who work on extraction, assembly, manufacturing, etc., are they fairly and equitably uh, treated? These questions are there. So if you start with a mindset that I'm doing my job because I'm producing much higher quality products than the others, then it's not starting well because you might have other type of negative impacts anyway. The second problem is that the luxury industry is actually selling us dreams And these dreams are about fueling more and more consumption. And even in hard luxury, there has been this Instagram trend that you have to launch more and more new products because consumers want to like the buzz and sharing with each other on social media. And therefore, you know, we're seeing an acceleration of the pace of innovation, product innovation, across the board. And that's completely inconsistent with the era of re responsible consumption that we're going to need in order to keep things under control. So this mindset needs to change. I notice a lot of luxury companies are announcing new chief sustainability officers at the moment. How's that going for them? I think it's really good news to see chief sustainability officers being appointed in a lot of luxury brands, although the research is showing that chief sustainability officers cannot change everything by themselves. You know, they will have to build coalitions of management, middle management, employees in order to drive change, and not least also external coalitions, even with competitors, with NGOs, which are things that luxury brands are absolutely not used to do because It's all about control, not about openness in that type of industry. That's interesting to hear you talk about a disproportionate focus on carbon from an environmental perspective. We also see that from a customer perspective. We see that people don't get excited about carbon commitments from companies as they used to. They're increasingly becoming table stakes. So it's an interesting example of the gap between the way customers think about sustainability and the way companies think about sustainability. Are there any other gaps that you could help us understand? Gaps between the way people think of sustainability and the way companies seem to be approaching it? I think that consumers, whatever they say, are not embracing sustainability and wholeheartedly at least, or not uh, at all for the majority. And that's because at the core of luxury, the core driver and value of luxury is about status, self-gratification, whereas the values of sustainability depend on self-transcendence. And it's about collective thinking, including what's going to happen to future generations, the invisible stakeholders on which we have negative impacts. A lot of our work at RED is really about trying to close gaps between the way regular people and customers think about the world and the way companies see things from inside their walls. 
Are there any important gaps, Stefan, between the way customers and companies approach things when it comes to sustainability in the luxury space? On the consumer side, a gap that I could see, for example, is... So let's think that you have customers that are who are really goodwilling and really conscious and want to change. Do they have the infrastructures in place for bringing their old clothes, their old bags, their old shoes to be reconditioned or the material being recycled? I think we're very far from there. Brands are reflecting about what role they can play in the collect, recycle, and circular economy. They will do much more and they will need to involve also um, other type of partners, governments, but also private sector partners or even NGOs. And then these infrastructures are actually very heterogeneous around the world, you know, so many more efforts will be required to close that gap. Then, as you said, I think it's the information gap, you know, When you see as a customer the progress that a brand has made on a particular product and they will make those records transparent via technology, for example, what does it mean, really? So here, benchmarks, comparisons, educations, the way brands are going to explain meaningfully. And here we've seen throughout the spring and summer a lot of brands, not necessarily in luxury, but at least in the wider fashion industry, being caught for greenwashing because the marketing departments use concepts and communicate messages that they probably don't even understand. And the regulator has found that it's misleading customers. So there's going to be a lot of gaps to be closed also on customer information, customer education in order to change things. These are just examples. And our last question, Stefan, as we study the way customers perceive sustainability initiatives, one of the problems that we see that you've just touched on is that they're not always translated into a language and into concepts that people can really understand and not always connected to the issues that people are most emotionally invested in. And we also see that sustainability initiatives and outcomes from different companies are very hard for people to compare. So do you think there's still a job to be done in translating what happens inside of companies when it comes to sustainability into something that customers can really make sense of? Yes, uh, there will be things, a lot of things that can be done. But the real problem is that are consumers really thinking luxury brands as being authentic. That means alignment between what they want to do, their sustainability strategy and targets, and how they achieve that. Think about how this spring, you know, Yves Saint Laurent has been highly criticized for the way they run their shows in Morocco. Before that, it was just private planes to take uh, VIP customers for cruising shows, collections in different locations in the world. Before that, it was another big company which had big sustainability commitments, but at the same time was cutting down a countless number of trees to create a fashion show in the middle of Paris. So I think customers perceive that schizophrenia and between what a lot of brands say and what they really want to achieve or other 
luxury groups that have been pilloried for regular tax evasion. You know, so the key problem for brands, I repeat, is that they don't know what they want to achieve with sustainability beyond reducing carbons and creating and reducing their impact as opposed to creating positive impact. And then they struggle to align all the pieces of the equation in order to change their business models, change the way they operate, to be really authentic and credible. So starting from there, you know, a lot of consumers will think, so why should I change my ways when I read in the news all these inconsistencies? Stefan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. That was Charlotte Vangsgaard and Stéphane Giraud. Thank you very much for joining us on the Phenomena podcast. Mm-hmm.